The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. It's 18 after 11. We continue the conversation on the talking point tomorrow, of course, being a historically significant day in South Africa. And we'll be marking Freedom Day and April, of course, commonly referred to as Freedom Month. Now, Professor Chija Twala has been speaking to us and raising awareness in particular about the role of safe houses in the struggle and why it is important to acknowledge the kind of contribution that these safe houses played to the liberation struggle. Professor Twala, good morning and thank you so much for your time today. Of course, we'll be in conversation in a moment with Professor Twala. Before we do that, however, let's first kick it off here. Now, um, when when we look at the houses and the structures that were put together, uh, these were often houses where wanted comrades would hide while conducting operations from their mother bodies. Uh, sadly, some of the safe houses beyond our borders that housed freedom fighters were attacked by the then SANDF. One of those was on the 9th of December in 1982, where 42 people, including 30 South Africans, were killed in Maseru. We'll take you down memory lane. And this is a testimony from Nelly Marwankana at the TRC Commission, who, with her family, fled to Lesotho in 1982. Four days after their arrival in in Maseru, she stood by as South African commandos killed her husband and two children, as well as some fellow South Africans who were staying in that house. They kicked the door, the people who were coming inside, but they said they wanted Mavimbela. At the time, they were calling Pakamile Mavimbela. There was a white man who had smeared himself and darkened himself. He was having a rug on his shoulders. I think he was at least embarrassed to shoot my husband in my presence. So he chased us away and said, my children and I should get out of the room. So we went to the bathroom. But my youngest daughter came to the room. He said he would hide. And then I said, no, we must be together. So that if one of us is killed, we should all be killed. There was a sound of gunfire, and then everything was quiet thereafter. But they didn't come to the bathroom. So I felt that we should go out. I started in Alfred's room, and I called him Alfred, Alfred, and we realized that he is dead. So we covered him with a blanket. We went to another room. There was also a visitor here, and he was also shot dead. We found our brother, he was killed also. I said to my son, I told you about this. I stated to you that I have been telling you about your laziness. I was thinking that he is asleep. I informed him that I cannot tolerate this laziness. I said, why should you sleep whilst we have been shot? There were shots. I didn't realize that I was talking to a corpse because I could see that he was shot on the head. 
The child that I'm talking about is Mzukis. I could see that they started with Mzukis because he was next to the door. So he fell next to the door. Probably they started by shooting him. We were looking for Tandiswa because we couldn't find him. But when I looked through, I could see that the, my child was just behind the wardrobe. I could see that it was my daughter. So that's just one account of one family uh, who was kept at the safe houses and what happened when their particular safe house came under threat. Professor Chicha Twala is the with the Department of History at the University of the Free State. Professor Twala, good morning to you and thank you so much for being part of this conversation today. Uh, good morning, Katie, and good morning to your listeners. Uh, I'm happy to, to be hosted by your show. Mm. Let's talk about, firstly, why you felt it was important to raise the issue of these safe houses in the context of Freedom Month, as we sometimes refer to it in, in, in South Africa. Uh, thanks, Katie. Uh, one would recall that freedom in South Africa uh, came as a result of uh, fighting in different angles and from different fronts. And sometimes we tend to concentrate on on something that is known rather than delving in the unknowns. Mm. And sometimes we concentrate on the people who are really profiled rather than people who played the role behind the scenes and who are called the unsung heroes and heroines. Uh, to me, for 2021, when I sat down, I thought that there are many instances where freedom was was fought through, and then I thought about the role of the safe houses and what impact that had on the liberation of South Africa, and that propelled me to to write an opinion piece about these safe houses uh, and also to try by all means to educate our masses that there was something called the, the, the hosting houses mm. or the safe houses or the transit houses which were used by the young liberation activists in the 1980s, 1970s and 1990s in an attempt to get freedom for South Africa. And that, that is what uh, motivated me to write this opinion piece. One of the things that you're also highlighting is the kind of cross-border political activities that, that took place, and I suppose in many ways that had roots in different communities of, of, of this region. Yes, it is also important. We can't talk about the, uh, the, the safe houses across the border and inside the borders of South Africa without tapping into the historiography of the borderlands, mm. which is also one untapped kind of history that we want also to profile. That uh, people who believe in South Africa going into, into Lesotho, Swaziland, Botswana, and there were people who were masterminding that cross-border. And then we need also to think about that kind of, of relationship and why would people from Bloemfontein go via uh, Botswana or into exile or via Lesotho? And what was the relationship between these countries in terms of fast-tracking the liberation struggle? Therefore, the whole question 
as a whole, the, the issue of the borderland historiography, it is important to us in order to understand that moving up to the north to as far as uh, reaching Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, what were the challenges that these people were confronted with? And then where were they housed? And why were they housed there? And then who were the people housing them? And who were the people masterminding their exit from within the country to outside the country? And how was the journey? Because we are wary of a situation whereby after 1994, we get what we call the peacetime heroes, all people claiming to have played a, a role in the liberation struggle. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you look and delve into their history, you, you see a, a zero contribution. Mm. Let's speak then uh, about these safe houses and how exactly they, they used to function. Uh, because of the secretive nature of these houses, uh, usually the cell leaders will be knowing about these houses. The cell leaders will be a person who is in charge of a cell of about four to five people. And those people would not know each other, but the cell leader would know all the people under his cell. And then that person will be liaising with the leadership in exile, and then they'll have identified the houses or where people will be housed. And in most cases, one might think that the people who were owning those houses were activists. But in many occasions, they were not activists themselves, but they were sympathetic to the liberation cause and to the liberation project. Hence, they would open their houses and try to, to hide these young political activists who were en route into exile. Uh, at one point, I interviewed some people in Fixbeck, and then they said that the parents are no more. But they said, we used to see people coming to our house to our house for a day or two, and then they will just disappear after that. And then we were not allowed even to ask them uh, who their names were. We usually call them uncles. And then an uncle will be there in our house for two to three days, and thereafter they'll move on and moving uh, into, into, into Lesotho, into Maseru. Therefore, that shows that uh, the whole question was so secretive to an extent that only those who were hosting these youngsters would know them, and people were not allowed to, to stay much longer period because of the threat from the South African Defence Force mm-hmm. and the SAP that they might be attacked as it happened in Maseru. Were the, the host families always activists? Did they have to meet a particular profile in order to to be the ones playing this role? Some of them were, 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 were having links with the exile leadership. Mm-hmm. And some of them were people just sympathetic to the liberation, to the liberation goals of, of South Africa. And then they'll just open their houses in order to house these people. But they knew exactly what they were doing. But the information was not cascaded down to any other uh, person who was not in the circle and then who was not in line with, with what was happening, because the whole question of secrecy was important in view of the fact that uh, even in exile, uh, the, 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 the camps and the leadership was also infiltrated by, 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 by the SANDF and the SAP. I recall one day I interviewed somebody uh, who was in, in Maseru, and then he said to me, on two occasions, he managed to escape the attack from South Africa. Mm-hmm. And, but it was so suspicious 
that this person, when there was going to be an attack, the person knew about the attack that was going to take place. And at one instance, the person was was uh, at his girlfriend, and then he, he he escaped the attack. And then on the second occasion, the person said, I was at a shop, and then people were attacked. And some people will hear stories, horrible stories and stories of horror, whereby people are telling you that water would be poisoned somewhere, uh, in exile, and then people will be drinking water, and then they'll be having running stomachs the whole night, and then during that uh, 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 incident of running stomach, and then people will be attacked. And mm. then that shows mm. that there was a level of infiltration from the South African government into exile, because they knew what was happening and when was it happening. But people also uh, were protected by using their combat names or their code names. Because sure. if they come and say, we are looking for so-and-so, and then they can't find that person, you find that the person has changed his name into another name, the name that he's known for, Professor, and by that yeah. name in exile. And Professor Twala, we're going to continue with this conversation after the 11.30 news headlines. The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana, weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Well, coming up at noon is the update at noon with Sakina Kamwendo. And today they'll be looking at the SAPS backlog for DNA testing for DNA testing results. Uh, and it continues to haunt families who, of course, are desperately needing closure or even access to the criminal justice system. And uh, many cases, of course, hinging and waiting off of those results. So Sakina will bring you more on that story. And they'll also take a look at bullying and prejudice that have damaging effects on victims and their family and of course uh, plenty other stories coming up on the update at noon all right so let's the talking point with kathy mosasana weekdays 9 a.m till midday well so let's continue our conversation this morning we're talking to professor chija who is uh, with the Department of History at the University of the Free State. We're looking at the role of uh, safe houses in particular when it comes to the contribution that those safe houses made to the struggle for liberation. And it's interesting because, Professor Twala, you mentioned that this is an area that actually hasn't been studied or researched to the full extent that it could be. Yes, definitely. Uh Historians, South African historians uh, dealing with liberation history or liberation studies, uh, we haven't yet uh, delved into this topic extensively. And I wanted to open it up for people. Uh, perhaps we do have people who, who hosted these uh, mm-hmm. activists in exile or uh, within the South African borders in their houses. Mm-hmm. Maybe they wanted to tell their stories. Or we do have their children who would recall something like that happening. Or we do have people like the lady uh, whose testimony was in the TRC that you played before, who might become who might become handy in telling mm-hmm. these stories of what exactly happened. Because what we need to to tap into it is the truth of what happens to these houses, and uh, the only truth 
will also help us in terms of documenting this kind of of history. Mm-hmm. You, you you alluded to the level of infiltration that took place when it came to communities and the then apartheid government being able to identify and track the movements of people who were being sheltered at these safe houses. Often, what form did those raids and attacks take? You know, the infiltration to start with will be informed by people who live in the country and be planted as informers or spies within the midst of those who were pursuing the liberation struggle. Mm. And such people will be in the payroll of of the South African uh, apartheid regime. And uh, remember that in the olden days, the whole question of screening people, it was not as serious as it happened later whereby people will be streamed and then whereby people will be interrogated as to how did you know about this place and then who sent you here and then people will have to provide information. Failure to provide information then you'll be categorized and then you'll be looked at as an informer trying to come and get some information of what was happening in exile. Mm. And the question of attacks uh, in one testimony by Eugene de Kock, Eugene de Kock said they were working hand in glove with the South African police in terms of the police unit, uh, the bomb police unit, in terms of getting uh, information, in terms of also getting uh, the explosives that they were using in, in bombing those houses in exile. And then he continued in one of his testimonies and saying, and sometimes they will have the Russian origin explosives and use them for attack. And in return, they would want to conceal and say, no, these uh, Russian explosives exploded because they were hidden by these young activists in those houses. Mm. Not to say it was the whole question of an attack from the South African Defense Force or the South African police. Therefore, there were other ways of of trying to lay the blame at the doorsteps of the liberation movement rather than taking the blame of the South African government itself. Mm. So holistically then, the the kind of relationship, because you said it, it's, always, it's also important for us to track why people were choosing the particular countries, whether it's Maseru, whether it's Khaboroni, as the exit points effectively out of the the southern part of this country into wherever else they may still be journeying to. What is the link that you found there? It was the whole question. One, if you look at the Free State Province, for example, and then you look at Maseru, from Bloemfontein to Maseru, it is an hour, 30 minutes drive. Therefore, the proximity of Maseru from the people in Bloemfontein, from the people in Ladybrand, from the people in Fixbeck, from the people in Forestbeck, it was much easier to cross into Maseru. Mm-hmm. And number two, it is the relationship that existed with the governments of these neighboring countries of saying, yes, we are prepared to host you, but at the same time, these governments were also threatened by the government that we are going to stop whatever relations that we do have 
with you if you continue housing these people. Therefore, it was a give-and-take kind of a situation whereby these governments from our neighboring states were also threatened. But at the same time, they wanted to play a role in, in assisting the liberation of South Africa. You get also people going to as far as, as Botswana, uh, crossing to uh, through to Lubatse and crossing to Francistown and uh, up into into Khaburoni. And then that was an exit road. Therefore, we need also a Professor Sifiso Ndrovu wrote an article about the exit route into exile, specifically looking at at, at, at the Botswana one. Mm-hmm. I think that is also important that uh, when we are in South Africa, we, we need to come up and trace those liberation routes and find out why were those routes taken and not the others, because that would have an impact on the understanding of the liberation route as well as the houses which were used. Therefore, we need also to understand that there were people on the other side of the borders who were sympathetic to the liberation cause in South Africa who were open up and say we are prepared to assist and then we are prepared also to to open up our houses especially the houses next to the borders you will recall that in the free state for example in lady brand there was a bastion of of the of the special branch uh, it was very difficult to can cross through lady brand because of the security offices in lady brand but people would use other neighboring towns mm-hmm. still to cross into lesotho we're in conversation with Professor Chija Twala. He's with the Department of History at the University of the Free State. And we're talking about the safe houses that were used by those who were in exile, who were fleeing from uh, the apartheid state in South Africa. And he's raising awareness around this issue because, number one, he feels that more research needs to be done into understanding how these safe houses functioned, but most importantly, also acknowledge the contribution that was made by people beyond South Africa's borders that ultimately made sure that we are able to be in the position that we're in today. I'm going to take a quick break and after this we'll wrap up the conversation with Professor Twala and we'll wrap up the show then taking a look at online fraud which has increased under COVID-19. Let's have the conversation. WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. You're live on The Talking Point. We continue the conversation today with Professor Chija Twala, and we're talking about the role of safe houses. Uh, Professor Twala, you know, I think one of the things that you have also pointed out just in this piece that you had penned was the individual stories of, of families that you knew who had sacrificed their homes to contribute as safe houses. Do you think that, you know, enough attention has been paid to that? Because it, it very much goes back to the conversation of um, those who need to be honored for contributing to a struggle. And I suppose acknowledging just how it took the effort of ordinary people to the leaders who led the struggle in order to contribute towards our freedom. Uh, thank you very much, Katie. I don't think from an academic point of view, mm. uh, we have acknowledged that uh, to to the latter. And I don't think from the political point of view, and that has also been acknowledged. Because uh, in order to acknowledge this, we need to popularize this kind of history and this kind of information. Mm. Uh, we are in the democracy now. 
and there is no threat now. Uh, we need to know more about these houses. We need to profile these houses and their owners in order to tap into the role that these people played. And we can also go to an extent of declaring these houses, whether we declare them as uh, local uh, monuments or provincial monuments or as national monuments, depending on the level and the contribution and the spark that the house provided in terms of liberation. And fortunately enough, we still have people who are still alive who went through those houses, who can tell the stories, and then we can make submissions in terms of the declaration and declare those houses because that is part and parcel of our history. Mm -hmm. If we don't do that, nobody will come from any other country and do that on our behalf as South Africans. We should roll up our sleeves and, and, and muddy our hands in terms of working together and then uh, provincial local government provincial government and national government working uh, hand in glove with institutions of higher learning to tap into that kind of history working hand in glove with the heritage authorities and the heritage agency in cape town in order to provide this kind of houses and declare them as part and parcel of our rich uh, liberation history in south africa we are also able as south africans to can declare houses in other countries which are our neighboring countries through the help of, of the south african heritage resources agency professor twala let me thank you for for being part of this conversation and he is with the department of history at the university of the free state